This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Steve Descano, Democratic candidate for Fairfax County Commonwealth's attorney. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure, uh, pleasure to be here, Jordan. I really appreciate you having me. Of course. So let's start simple. What is a Commonwealth's attorney? That is the million dollar question, right? Uh, Commonwealth's attorney is, well, in most jurisdictions, it's called a district attorney. Um, so, and when people hear that, they think it is maybe merely just the lead prosecutor for the county, but it's actually much, much more important than that. Um, your Commonwealth's attorney is really the leader of an office of prosecutors. In Fairfax County, we have approximately three dozen line attorneys. Um, those are the attorneys that tend to be in court every day actually doing the cases. Your elected Commonwealth's attorney really is responsible for big picture items, uh, strategy, setting policies and, and procedures in the office, leading the office. But really, probably the biggest thing um, that your elected Commonwealth's attorney would do is making sure that the values of the community are in the criminal justice system, making sure that the values that the community shares are the same values that are leading the criminal justice system. And I think that's important, particularly because maybe more so than, than a lot of people realize, your criminal justice system and your community are, are intimately intertwined. Uh, people go through the system and they come back out to our community. And if the same values that we have in our community aren't in our criminal justice system, we're going to be working at cross purposes and the community will never get to go where it wants to as long as the criminal justice system is running on a different set of values. And why are you running for this position? My experience is as a federal prosecutor. So I, I traveled all around the country um, for six years under the Obama administration, trying cases, seeing how things worked. And when I initially got into the uh, prosecution world, I had this very, this idea that the criminal justice system, what it should be, is that it should be a place where everybody gets treated equally, no matter how much money they have, the color of their skin, where they lived. Um, if you could, the criminal justice system, the justice system in general was place where everybody got a fair shake. And my experiences as a federal prosecutor, as well as a criminal justice reformer in Fairfax County, Virginia, I got to see that that's really not the case. I got to see that there is, in fact, systemic discrimination based on race and income and other factors. And that really bothered me. And I didn't think that that was what people would think about when they think about their criminal justice system. And knowing that that was a disconnect and also knowing that the person who is most powerful in your criminal justice system is your elected Commonwealth's attorney. Um, it was something that I felt compelled to do because um, I want to make that idea of what our justice system actually is uh, match with the idea that it's supposed to be. And what about your background makes you qualified for this position? Um, I, I, like I said, I was a prosecutor uh, at the highest level, so a federal prosecutor for six years, trying very, very complex cases and doing it all around the country. 
um, cases that were nationwide in scope, in fact, cases that were international in scope. So as far as being a prosecutor, um, I have that experience. Um, but like I said, it, it's much more than that. We're talking about uh, a job that leaves an office. Uh, right now, I run a small company that is actually has more employees and is bigger than our Commonwealth Attorney's Office. And my background is um, as a military officer, as a military leader, and learned how to lead at the United States Military Academy at West Point. But most importantly for this office, I have the experience in terms of being somebody out in the community fighting for criminal justice reform. Um, you know, in, our, in Fairfax County, we recently had a, uh, you know, after, after a police shooting, the, the Board of Supervisors, which is our local government here, created a, a civilian review panel um, for independent oversight of the police. And I served on that panel. I was one of the initial nine members. I wrote a lot of the bylaws and did a lot of the community building. Um, so I have experience doing that. And that's really what we need because when we need reform, we need somebody who, uh, who has the prosecutorial experience to do it, has the organizational experience to be able to see it through, but most important has the community contacts and the ability to build those coalitions throughout the community to make sure that the reform is being informed by our community values. And could you tell us a little bit about those values and how they would actually manifest in terms of how you'd manage this office? Sure, absolutely. That's a, a wonderful question. I like to think about it as three values. Uh, three values that I want to focus on that are sorely missing from our criminal justice system in Fairfax County. Uh, the first one is community. The second one is equality. Uh, making sure everybody's treated equally regardless of the color of their skin, how much money they have, or which part of the county they come from. And the third one is justice. Making sure instead of taking a tough on crime approach is what we have, taking a holistic approach where we keep our community safe, but we don't over-criminalize and over-incarcerate our neighbors um, so that we can actually build up our communities instead of breaking them down. So those are, those are the values. As far as policies that flow off of those values, there, there are plenty. Uh, I can give you a, a, a few right off the top of my head and we can go into, into more detail as you'd like. Uh, first of all, on the, the community piece, that really is a commitment to transparency. Right now, our Commonwealth attorney, he operates his office in a black box. Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody, there's no data. There's no community interaction. What I would want to do is, first of all, the first time my constituents see me won't be inside of a courtroom. Um, I want to hear, I want to have community forums, uh, both online and in person, and understand and bring people into the, into the criminal justice system. I also want to invite independent outside organizations into the office to create that data, data broken down by uh, race, income, part of the county, gender, so that we can really focus on, show, show the community what we're doing, focus on the areas that we need to, and essentially say, hey, this is where we're going to focus. What I want to be judged on is not conviction rates or length of sentence, but how well do we, do we start to shrink these disparities? On the equality piece, um, probably the thing that jumps out to me the most is cash bail. And I'm sure you're familiar with cash bail. It's, once somebody is arrested, um, if they're deemed to not be a danger to the community, a judge will potentially allow that individual back out into the community. And it's actually much safer and smarter to allow these people who aren't a danger to the community back out into the community pending their trial. But one of the conditions that we have is cash bail. Can you pay? And that can you pay? Can you scrounge up 500 or 1000 or $1,500? Doesn't have any effect on safety. All that does is create a two-tier system of justice where we penalize poor people simply for being poor. Uh, what I want to do as Commonwealth's attorney is direct my 
um, direct my prosecutors, the, the line prosecutors who are in court, to if somebody is already deemed to be not a danger to the community, to never ask for cash bail because we don't want to penalize poor people for being poor. Um, that would get us to a more equal system of justice. As far as the actual justice piece of it, I think that what we have now is we have a tough on crime um, administration that is probably best exemplified by the fact that my opponent has and regularly asked for the death penalty. Um, we know that the death penalty doesn't keep us safe, um, doesn't deter crime, costs a whole heck of a lot more money to do, and is very, very racially discriminatory. I mean, your biggest predictor of if somebody's going to get the death penalty is the race of the victim and the race of the, of the defendant. So what I would do is, and I make this pledge as Commonwealth's attorney in Fairfax County, Virginia, I'll never ask for the death penalty, period, full stop. So those are, are there are more specific issues that we could talk about, but those are the headline three that I, that, you know, one for each of the three values that I like to focus on. And so you just mentioned your incumbent. Obviously, if you thought your incumbent was doing a good enough job, you wouldn't be running. What exactly is wrong with your incumbent and what are you going to do better? Well, you know, what we need in this position is we need a leader. Again, this is not just another prosecutor's, another prosecuting job. This is the leader of our criminal justice system. And unfortunately, my opponent is, has not been a leader here. Um, you know, you take, take any of the values that, that I mentioned or any of the issues that I mentioned before. Leadership would be getting out in the community, trying to solve the systemic discrimination that is in, that is inherent in our criminal justice system. My opponent is somebody who is never out in the community. The people don't know him. The people can't, can't contact him and the office is very unresponsive. Um, that's not showing great leadership. When we talk about cash bail, you know, it is within the prosecutor's, the Commonwealth's attorney's discretion to tell his people, look, this is a, a, a systemic injustice. We're punishing poor people for being poor. I don't want you to ask for cash bail anymore. He refuses to do that. He, whenever he has a, an opportunity to use his discretion, he essentially punts. Um, his response for cash bail is, well, it's not really my call. The judges do it. And if you want it fixed, uh, it should be at the legislature. He explicitly disclaims that his position, which is the most powerful position in the criminal justice system, more so than the police, more so than the judges, has any power. Um, and I think that's because he doesn't want to lead on these issues. You know, as far as, and, and really kind of the biggest thing is in the criminal justice system is you never know what problem is going to come up. Um, so it's, it's almost impossible to talk about what you'll do at every single step of the way. But what you need to focus on is, is the person in that seat running, does, do they have the right values? If when a problem comes in, are they going to have the right values? And I think that it's very clear that my opponent does not. And I'll give you a great example of this. My, in, in Virginia, we have uh, felon disenfranchisement laws. They're a vestige of, of Jim Crow. And essentially, if you are a felon, you have to get a, you have to petition the governor to get your voting and civil rights back. And my civil rights, one of the things is serving on a jury. Now, my opponent, um, he joined a Republican lawsuit to stop our Democratic governor, Terry McAuliffe, from giving voting rights back to over 200,000 Virginians, uh, disproportionately African-American individuals. And the reason that he gave for, for that stance was, well, trying juries, jury trials is hard 
I don't want these people on my juries because I shouldn't have to, to want to use one of my peremptory strikes. Now, what that shows to me is that he is prioritizing the ease of his job over, over fairness and over reenfranchising 200,000 people. I don't think that that is the values that we should have in our criminal justice system. The other part is, again, that disproportionately affects African Americans, but he claims that he, it wasn't something he thought about. It wasn't something he was aware of. And that, that shocks me because your job as the Commonwealth's attorney is to think about how your actions and your policies and procedures affect your community on the back end. And if he actually didn't think about that, that means he's not doing his job. And if he actually didn't know that this was a vestige of Jim Crow and that it disproportionately affect African Americans, that means he's signing on to legal documents, taking legal positions in court without doing even the barest minimum of research or learning the facts. If his statement that he didn't think about it isn't true, then that means he knew about it, but he still prioritized the ease of his job over being fair to individuals. And I think any one of those positions, no matter what, what the outcome there is, is not somebody that we want making decisions in a diverse, progressive community like Fairfax County. And given that the criminal justice system is, as you said, rooted in Jim Crow, do you think that it's appropriate to disenfranchise individuals convicted on felony charges who are disproportionately black in the first place? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, I think that what we want, what we really want from our criminal justice system is a, we want to keep our community safe, but we don't want to over-criminalize and over-incarcerate our neighbors. Because that not only is terrible for those individuals, but that's how we, it's terrible for their families, it's terrible for their future, which means it's terrible for all of our communities. What we really want out of our criminal justice system is we want people who, when they, if they have to, if they are in the system, to want to be able to come back out and actually live and be part of our productive members of our community. And we're never going to have that. If individuals who are, who had been convicted of felonies are treated as second class citizens, that is antithetical to what we would want out of our criminal justice system and out of our community. So, of course, I'm, I'm dreadfully, I mean, I am so opposed to any law that would automatically disenfranchise uh, felons. You, you said the point of the criminal justice system should be safety. What exactly does that mean? You know, I'm, what safety doesn't mean is locking people up and throwing away the key. That, that, that doesn't make our communities more safe. I think when you, when you over-criminalize and you over-incarcerate, what you're doing is you are creating a cycle of decreased opportunity, increased poverty, and increased crime. I think when you take that tough-on-crime approach, you're actually increasing crime in the long run. Now, so what I think about when I think about safety is, of course, there are people who are you know, your worst of the worst who, who are dangerous and, and, um, you know, are going to be sent to jail. But on the back end, but on the other, the flip side of that coin is we have people now that we are treating, treating harshly or sending to jail when they don't need to be sent to jail or they have a, a drug problem or, or, uh, mental health issue that should be treated outside of the criminal justice system. And by funneling those people into the criminal justice system, um, what we're doing is we're actually creating more crime and creating a less safe environment. So to me, safety means really 
taking taking the 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 people that I think most people can agree are a danger to the community and taking them out of the community. And that's a small percentage of people. But at the same time, treating these other individuals, um, trying to get at the root causes of their problems, because I think what you see is a lot of crime is driven by desperation, economic inequality, racial disparities, and, and just simply not getting to the root causes of these issues. And for that handful of individuals who do who you do believe need to be incarcerated at least for some period of time what should that incarceration look like what is the end goal of it that's a that's a, a great question um you know there are many many different theories of what incarceration should look like if we if we go or if we start from the premise that that I have and I, I mentioned before that what we want is we want for these individuals to come back out into our community and be productive members of our community, um, what, what that incarceration would have to look like is it would have to be rehabilitative. And it would have to include things that would allow them to come out into our communities and be a productive member of our, of our community. And what that really means to me is we can't just think about reentry when somebody is five or six weeks out from leaving jail and coming back into our communities. We need to think about that issue from the second a case hits the Commonwealth Attorney's desk. We need to start asking what is best for this person? What is best for the, excuse me, what is best for the community in this particular case? And a lot of times that would be, you know, diversion or, 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 you know, some other things if there's a mental health or drug issue. But for that handful of people that need to, that do need to spend some time incarcerated, what that means is there should be, be programs in the jail that help get to the root cause of any issue that they're had. There should be job training. There should be supports in place so that when people are released from incarceration, they can come back to our communities, be productive members of the communities, and not essentially go through that cycle of release, more crime, incarceration. That cycle of incarceration, repeated incarceration, is, is what we need to break. When we talk about crime, we're almost always talking about blue-collar crime, these individual instances of violence, how would you approach white collar crime? Yeah, that's a great question. As a matter of fact, my experience as a federal prosecutor was as a white collar prosecutor. And my cases were people who are rich and powerful who took advantage of the poor and needy, uh, people who didn't have power in the system. And in a lot of ways, the, and actually the, the, I got into the, I chose that, um, aspect of the law. Because I really felt that that was an aspect of the law that was underserved. And, you know, it's easy to look at, um, you know, your blue, as you call it, your blue collar individual one-off crimes, um, because they, they, they are in your face. They happen often. Um, but the white collar crimes, they, they're, they're silent, but they are just as devastating to people who are victims of them. As far as I'm concerned, I would treat them, I, I, I would treat them for, for the crimes that they are. Just because they are maybe perpetrated by doctors or lawyers or other people in power doesn't mean that they get uh, a different view from me. When I talk about equality, when it doesn't matter how much money you have, the color of your skin, I actually mean it. Um, and I mean it not only in the fact that poor people are no longer going to be discriminated against, but part of that is, is rich people are no longer going to get favors from the criminal justice system. I think a big question this gets down to is, 
how do we not just address individual crimes when they happen, but prevent these crimes or things that we do believe should be criminalized or dealt with in the criminal justice system? How do we prevent them? How do we prevent rape, murder, domestic violence from happening in the first place? Well, I think for a lot of crimes, um, quite frankly, the way that you prevent them is if is with is with opportunities in the community. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of crimes are crimes of economic insecurity. They're crimes of desperation, right? It, it, I don't – if people had um, other options, they would, not, they would not feel compelled to resort to crime as much. And that's where I think that on the criminal justice system, not over-criminalizing and over-incarcerating will help. Because as you know, if you – if you have a, if you're in jail or you have a, if you have a felony conviction record, that means you, your life is capped. You cannot, in, in a lot of cases, cannot get a loan to go to school. So that means you have to, you get a job and you get a job because you have a felony conviction. You, there are a lot of jobs that you can't work, particularly in Virginia. Um, so you're stuck at the most low wage, lowest level, um, job out there. And that's not enough to support you. That's not enough to support a family. So at that point, you're almost incentivized to go and commit a crime of economic desperation. And when you do that to entire communities, eventually what you see is entire communities get eaten up by this cycle of decreased opportunity and increased poverty, which leads to increased crime. You know, the other side of that is we also have a lot of crime that is the result of drug addiction or mental illness. And I don't believe that you can prosecute your way out of mental illness or a drug addiction. And those individuals who suffer from drug addiction and mental illness, when they're just treated, when they're just put into the criminal justice system and the root causes are not addressed, when they come back out, they just go through the same pattern again. So we're not really addressing anything. If you want to stop the crime that those individuals are committing due to their mental illness or their drug addiction, you have to actually get at the root causes. And what that means is expanding what we call diversion programs which are people would come in and we recognize they have a, a drug addiction or mental illness. And instead of criminalizing them for that, what we do is we would get them help to try to get to, to the root cause. And I think if you can do both of those things, you will actually make the community much, much safer in the long run. And looking at specific communities targeted by the criminal justice system, the immigrant community obviously faces really much higher stakes than those who the undocumented community faces these really high stakes. Any interaction could lead to deportation. What actions do you want to take to support the immigrant community? That's, that's a great question. I actually had a bit of experience with that. When I was a federal prosecutor, I had a case in Miami where um, uh, uh, not, uh, a community of, of recent immigrants, non, non-documented individuals were being extorted um, from business, by businessmen in Peru. And what I found was while these victims were, were terrified of the people who were extorting them, they were more terrified of law enforcement because they were worried just like that, that most prosecutors at best wouldn't take that case seriously or at worst would say, actually, you're the criminal because you're here illegally. We're going to deport you. You know, it was important to me that 
they realized or, or that they were that they were shown that they also deserve equal protection of the law. So I refused to give that case up. I actually, when the individual who was the leader of the of the extortion ring came into the United States, I was able to get uh, federal agents to go and get him off of a plane at the airport and bring him back to Miami, um, so that the to face up to what he had done, but also to let that those that community know that 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 they were part of our community regardless of their status. And I think that's very important, right? Making sure that we're reaching out to the community. We're there. We're treating everybody fairly. Um, at the same time, making the pledge that no witness, no victim, nobody that we come into contact with in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office is going to be turned over to ICE. Um, the other thing that I would want to do as Commonwealth Attorney as it results, as it relates to um, immigration is most people don't realize that even if it, even if an individual is say they have a long-term permanent resident card, a green card, um, there are a lot of crimes out there that are automatically deportable. Crimes you wouldn't even think of. Uh, for example, if you were busted with a little bit more than an ounce of marijuana, um, even if you went through a diversion program, you would be automatically deportable from the United States. And what I want to do is I want to make sure, and, and of course, that kills families, that kills communities, right? It breaks up, it does no good for anybody. Um, so what I want to do is I want to make sure that when we're we're making charging decisions in the office, we're taking that into account. And whenever possible, charging around charging around charges that would result in automatic deportation or exclusion from the country. Um, I think if we're able to do that, build goodwill with the with all communities to show that we are interested, we care, we want to make sure that we're building up all the communities, not just communities uh, full of people who are American citizens. And do you support ending participation in ICE's 287G program? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I don't think it's – local law enforcement should not be um, an arm of ICE. You know, I think when you take a look at what that does, it, that actually leads to less safety. You know, because when you have entire communities that are afraid to interact with law enforcement, what you, what, what you really have is you have entire communities – who are just sitting ducks that are just going to be victims and are going to be victimized over and over again because the people who would victimize them know that it's much less, it's so less likely that they'll be caught um, and punished for, for what they've done. So anything of ending that ending 287G, ending um, local law enforcement's interaction with ICE is something that is going to keep our communities safer and bring our communities together and actually build our communities up. So anything that does that, of course, I would be in favor of as that's one of the values that I really care about and what I want to try to bring to our system as the Commonwealth Attorney. And you've talked a lot about the war on drugs. It's become pretty common knowledge that we shouldn't throw people in prison for marijuana possession, but we don't hear often about dealing with other drugs do you believe that we should decriminalize all drug possession? How would you approach other drug convictions? Well, I think um, that, that's a great question, right? I mean, that is something that has come up quite a bit. You know, for, for marijuana, of course, um, you know, one, one of the differences between myself and my opponent is he still prosecutes marijuana cases. I would not prosecute a simple possession of marijuana case. As far as the other as other crime, as excuse me, for other drugs, 
um, single possession cases. I'll be quite honest with you. I don't know if I would support full decriminalization, but I also don't think that um, I think that 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 people who fall into that are, are being treated much har- much more harshly than they should be. What I would be in favor of is I would be in favor of diversionary programs, um, and if they can, and if someone was able to complete the, the diversionary program, then they would not be entered into the criminal justice system as a way to try to get individuals who are actually addicted to drugs um, to get them out of that, but also allow them to go back into society not only without the or, or with the addiction under control but without a criminal record so that they were able to actually fulfill um, whatever they wanted to achieve in life. Whereas if they had, a con- even if they had that, that felony conviction, they would, be, they would almost certainly be capped by what they can do just because they were addicted to drugs at some point in their life. And do you support decriminalizing sex work? You know, I have to be honest with you. That is the first time I have been asked that question um, and is not something that I have a rock-solid a position on at the moment. It'd probably be easier for me to, to tell you something different, but I'm just being honest. Uh, that's where that's where I am with that question right now. No, I appreciate the honesty. And transgender people have a particularly bad relationship with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. A 2015 National Center for Transgender Equality survey found that almost 60% of transgender people who interacted with law enforcement experienced mistreatment Recently, a transgender woman in the Bronx was charged with false personation for giving the NYPD her real name rather than her dead name, and it only gets worse in prison. Transgender people are often incarcerated in facilities that match the gender marker on some of their legal documentation, but not their actual gender. Additionally, they are often denied gender affirmation treatment that drastically reduces risk of self-harm and suicide. We saw that very notably in Chelsea Manning's experience being incarcerated. So therefore, the prison experience for transgender people, and especially transgender women, entails far higher risks of assault, rape, and suicide than compared to their cisgender counterparts. How will you go about supporting the trans community? That's, a, that's actually a wonderful question. And I will tell you that I had a conversation with a transgendered woman not, not too long ago. Um, and it's a very emotional conversation um, because she detailed for me um, an interaction that she had with the police and detailed how scared that she was um, because of the way that she felt that she could be treated, particularly that issue that you mentioned where um, because of her status, she would be put into a holding cell and into jail with people um, who were of the sex that was hers at, at, on her birth certificate. Um, I think that's terrible. And I think that all the problems that you, that you mentioned, um, how individuals are, trans individuals are treated in jail and the problems that they have and the higher rates of, of harm and suicide are unacceptable. You know, we talked about what we want from prison and we talked about rehabilitation. And certainly somebody going through that um, is not in a position to be rehabilitated. What I would want to do how I would want to address that as the Commonwealth's attorney um, is how I would want to address a lot of things that are somewhat outside of the direct scope of the job. And what I mean by that is not only do I see the Commonwealth's attorney's position as somebody who leads the Office of Prosecutors, leads the criminal justice system, but I actually also see it as somebody who advocates for the community's values. 
in issues that are somewhat outside of the scope of the Commonwealth attorney, but are still involved in criminal justice. So what I would want to do is right now, what we have in Virginia is when the, the General Assembly down in Richmond is very, very powerful. Um, it's, it, Virginia is what, what's called a Dillon rule state, which means that the state capital tends to control many, many things. Um, and the local, the local government doesn't control as much as you would think or as much as uh, tends to happen in other states. What I would, and what happens is down there, those legislators, they hear from tough on crime, conservative, right wing, reactionary law enforcement, sheriff, police, commonwealth attorneys, and that's all they hear from justice. Um, that is their view of justice. What I would want to do is I want to create, because Fairfax County is the biggest, in a lot of ways, most powerful county in Virginia. What I would want to do is I want to create a statewide coalition of progressive prosecutors, progressive attorneys, progressive organizations to actually act as a counterweight to that. So we go down to Richmond, we lobby for reform, criminal justice reform, prison reform, anything that touches on the criminal justice system that's somewhat outside of the scope of directly under the Commonwealth's attorney. And supporting individuals in the transgender community, um, particularly the issues around how they're treated in jail and prisons, that's something that we could be very effective with if we're able to build that coalition. And that's how I would go about um, trying to support the trans community with, with respect to how they are treated um, while, while incarcerated. And obviously right now in the national news is attention on two allegations of sexual violence by your lieutenant governor. What approach would you take to sexual violence? My first, before I was even done with law school, my first um, experience with the law, I was a, an intern at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office in the, in the Violence and Sexual Assault Unit. So I got to, to see a little bit of that work up close. and. What I think is critically important, and I think it's starting to get to the zeitgeist now, is that a rec is to recognize that people who come out as victims, people who have claims of, of sexual assault, that it takes a lot of bravery to come out and do that, and that they should be treated with respect, and their 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 accusations or their claims should be believed and should be investigated. Um, fully and thoroughly. And, you know, I know too often that doesn't happen. Too often, um, you know, a prosecutor, uh, officer or what have you will, will look at some of these claims and almost try to pick at reasons why this can't be real and pick at reasons why this isn't something that we should investigate or this is something we shouldn't put manpower to. And I think that's unacceptable. Um, so what I would do is I would, take every one of those claims incredibly seriously, do full investigations, regardless of how powerful or how rich or who, whatever the, uh, the, the accused is. Because I think to do anything less than that is works against justice and doesn't work um, in concert with the values that we want for, for our community. And that's unacceptable. And do you view state government as an ally to these reforms you're proposing? You know, I will be honest with you. I don't think that the state government as it currently is, is constructed is an ally of these reforms. And the reason I say that is in Fairfax County, Virginia, it's a very, very blue democratic progressive area. Um, but the, but if you went down to the state legislature, you'll see that the, the state Senate 
and the state house of delegates are controlled by Republicans. And every time a common sense criminal justice bill shows up in Richmond, it dies a swift death. Um, you know, I was down in Richmond a few weeks ago lobbying um, for for a bill that I thought was very, very non-controversial. And it addressed pre-trial detention. And all we wanted to all the bill asked for was for not even to conduct a, conduct a study, but to to amalgamate all of the information that was throughout disparate um, agencies within the state, bring them together into one area so that they can be studied so we can see what type of disparate impacts, any types of discrimination that we have in uh, pretrial detention, particularly around cash bail. That seems so common sense. Why wouldn't you want data on that? That bill, that bill, I don't even think made it out of committee. Um, it was killed very swiftly. And so we have, we have a Republican dominate legislature and groups that are fairly conservative law enforcement groups, as I mentioned before, are very, very powerful in Richmond. And these state legislatures, state legislators, this is not a full-time job for them. This is a part-time position. A lot of them are, are not attorneys and the ones who are attorneys typically don't practice in criminal law. So they listen, you know, they listen to the quote unquote experts and the experts quote unquote that they're hearing from are all these powerful but conservative groups. That's why I think it's incredibly important that we create that statewide commonwealth wide coalition of progressives so that we can go down there and speak from the position of prosecutors and show the legislators that yes, you've heard that conservative, that tough on crime talking point, but let us show you what a progressive view of justice is. Let us show you the work that we're doing. Let us give you another view of what justice can be because that's the change that we need because to get to the heart of your question right now, the state government as a whole, even though our, you know, our, our top three statewide elected officials are Democrats, the state government controlled mostly by the legislature is very, very opposed to any type of criminal justice reform. It has been for some for quite some time. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. You have called for the governor to resign for his, it's, it's a lot, it includes blackface, a racist nickname, 
The lieutenant governor has assault allegations and the attorney general admitted to doing blackface. Do you believe that we need all three of these officials to resign from their posts? That is the the question that is, uh, I know you're not in Virginia, but it is the question that swirls all around Virginia. Um, you know, I did call for, I did call for, for the governor to resign. Um, you know, I think that it's very clear when you look at what he did, what he admitted to, and the way that he handled it, um, in terms of particularly that disastrous press conference the day after the uh, the pictures came out. Um, it's very clear that he doesn't have the the backing or the coalition um, to lead anymore, and I think, it, and that's why, um, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's incredibly important that that he would resign, and I did call on him to do so. As far as the the allegations against the lieutenant governor, you know, you have two. First of all, the allegations are serious. They're they're terrible. Um, they're they're some of the the worst type of allegations that anyone can make against them. Uh, you know that any that anybody could do. Um, and I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to take a sober. Um, approach them. And what I mean by that is to treat the, the, the people who are making the allegations with respect and to do a thorough, thorough investigation of the allegations. Um, I think that is what we need to do. And I think that comports with the idea that we should believe victims, treat them with respect, as well as it also allows us to it allows us to not throw out the idea of due process for justice, um, particularly when we're talking about a case like this, particularly when a case is um, still live, at least the one in, um, I think the statute of limitations for the, for the first allegation is still live. So I think what we need to do is we need to take a sober-minded approach to these allegations and do a full investigation of them. And of course, if the allegations are founded. I mean, that's not only, sh- not only should the lieutenant governor resign, but there's a, the, there's, there's criminal liability there. Um, so, so at that point, his, his job would be, would be the least of his worries. What about the attorney general? I think the attorney general is, I think the, the, the approach in the way that the attorney general handled um, his admission of once wearing blackface. I think it's markedly different from the approach that the governor did. And I think that, that those two are distinguishable. You know, it's very clear when you read the, um, the statement of the attorney general that not only, not only obviously is he, is he remorseful for what he did, but he understands why it was wrong. Um, and he understands in a way that the governor just quite frankly does not. And, you know, I think what you've seen is that, that understanding and that openness to not only admitting wrong, but, but engaging in, a, in an actual dialogue about it. I think what you've seen as opposed from the, the attorney general to the governor is that the attorney general is seen as somebody who still can lead. The attorney general is somebody who still has, um, who has the confidence 
of a much larger percentage of the population than the governor does. And I think those, those two cases, therefore, are somewhat distinguishable. And do you think that it's fair for these officials to ask the people of Virginia, particularly Black people and women, to trust them to truly represent all of the people? Hmm. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, you know, uh, certainly it is not incumbent upon um, African Americans to do the to do the work of of ending racism. Um, you know, that is. Eh. But I think. Trying to formulate my my answer here. I want to put this in in the best way possible. So please for, please forgive me for for pausing for too long. No worries. No worries. I think that they can ask, um, but that's all they can do. And I think that, quite frankly, I think both have in some ways asked, and I think that you've seen a different response from from the African-American community as it regards to the governor and the attorney general. Um, I really do think that as the, the people who are most affected in a lot of ways by, by these two scandals, you know, feeling or, or, or respecting the feelings and the wishes of the African-American community um, is paramount here. And I think that at least what I've seen is that the response from that community has been different as between the governor and the attorney general. And I think that more than anything is the, the, the distinguishing line between those two cases. And a bit of an easier question, where can folks find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? Oh, that's a great question. I, I appreciate you asking. Um, you can find me online on my website, which is stevedescano.com which is uh, D-E-S-C-A-N-O. You can also find me on Twitter, at Steve Descano, or on Facebook, Steve Descano for Fairfax County Commonwealth Attorney, which, you know, I keep it very simple. Um, but yes, those, those are the areas they can find me online. If they'd like to get involved, um, you can work through those portals or reach out to me on social media. I would love to have everybody, anybody who is interested in criminal justice reform, get involved in this campaign because you know, if your listeners don't know, this is a pop, Fairfax County, Virginia has a population of approximately 1.2 million people. Um, it's essentially the same size as Philadelphia. Um, and we need reform. And if we can bring reform to a county of 1.2 million people, which is by far the biggest county in all of Virginia, what we can do is that can be the starting point to bringing this type of reform all through Virginia and continue the momentum um, that we've seen nationwide for criminal justice reform. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we hope to get you on again after you win the election. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate being here, Jordan. I hope that, uh, that we can talk again under exactly those circumstances you just described. Awesome. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.